In today's episode, we have the professor and former Buddhist monk, Thomas Patton. Welcome, everyone, to The Unconventionals, a podcast where I have conversations with people who have made their way in life through unconventional ways. Each episode, we learn about the lifestyles, challenges, and mindset that led these people to where they are today. My name is Javier Aguilar, talking to you from Hong Kong, and the podcast starts now. Let's give it a try. Sure, let's, let's go. go with the flow. Yeah, sounds good. Thomas, thank you so much for coming here today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me, Javier. I'm really pleased to be here this morning. I'm actually really excited because when I was uh, looking for people that I could interview, or people that I consider have unconventional lifestyles, your name came right off the bat. And uh, we have a friend in common, yep. Jonathan, mm -hmm. and he told me, man, you have to interview this guy. <laughs> He's got such a cool lifestyle. He's done so many things. You should totally get him in the podcast. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> so, uh, so here we are. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Uh, just to give a little bit of an intro about uh -huh. who you are, and maybe you can help me with that sure. uh, for people to know. And you are Thomas, you're a professor in the Hong Kong University. Mm -hmm. City yeah. University of Hong Kong, associate professor, been there for seven years now. Seven years now. Uh -huh. And what's your specialty? Uh, religious studies. So I do mostly Asian religions. So those are there, the so Buddhism, Hinduism, a bit of Islam, and some other world religions. Mm. I see. And you also even publish a book, which we will talk about uh -huh. it. You had a you studied uh, religious studies mm -hmm. back in the states. Mm -hmm. Then you went in to study a master's in Harvard. Yes, as well. Yes, uh -huh. very, very nice. Yes, and I know you have some cool stories along the way. Living as a monk. Yes, in Asia. Yes, that was quite the experience. That was quite experience. I could imagine. <laughs> Where was that in Myanmar? That was in Myanmar. Uh huh. Right. Yeah, that was back in 1999. So the oh, wow. country had just opened up for tourists and foreigners back in 1996. It was like visit Myanmar year. So they really tried to get because and even at that time it was very very difficult to get a visa. So I was able to get a meditation visa. So that was one of the only ways you could get into the country is get a meditation visa or a monastic visa, meaning you would go there to ordain as a Buddhist monk or nun. Oh, wow. And so I was sponsored by a prominent monk at the time. And so he invited me. Um, I uh, went with some monks from India. I was living in India at the time. Okay. And yeah, from there, it just took off. Never in a million years would I thought I'd be a monk in in some small well, village up in upper Myanmar never in a million years for sure like yeah. I would have thought that's very interesting but I'd like to start a little bit about mm -hmm. your background mm -hmm, sure because you grew up in the states yes what about so I grew up in a very small town called Troy New York which is about three hours north of New York City okay yeah very small town and then how did it happen that you got interested in religious studies yeah so I mean my family I was brought up half Catholic Roman Catholic and half Protestant Methodist. So my dad was Catholic, my mom was Protestant. So we were not overly churched, but church and religion was, you know, an important part of our lives. Um, you know, a lot of our social functions would center around church functions, not necessarily going to church, but like pancake breakfast, youth groups, mm. choirs. Um, a lot of my early friends were from our local church. A lot of my school friends um, went to either the, the local Protestant church or the local Catholic church. So early on, I was exposed to a lot of that stuff. And that was always there in the background. And I enjoyed it. But as I got a bit older, I think most teenagers begin to question a lot of things, you know, part of a rebellious phase or whatever, whereas yes. some of my friends decided to just go with it, you know, and continue on being Christians. I began to think, well, 
is what else is out there, you know? And, you know, some of my uh, ministers or the the Christian brothers, I went to a Catholic school as well, okay. uh, Catholic high school, middle school and high school. Hmm. And the brothers and priests would tell me, don't read this, don't read that. Buddhism hmm. is bad. Hinduism is bad. And so I said, ooh, all the more reason for me to go to the library. <laughs> yeah. There was no internet back then. So I'd go to the library and get all these books out. And I'd be like, wow. And at first my parents were a bit, you know, they were a bit unsure but they, you know, they, they, they saw that, okay, it's, it's nothing to be scared of. And they mm-hmm. kind of encouraged my interest in these kinds of things, okay. which was, I was really lucky at the time. And because uh, other parents would have been like, that's no. actually quite lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also grew up in a very religious mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. and it's not, it's not common that you see parents encouraging you to see what's out there. Yep. So that's actually great. Yeah. So I was very happy and I had some really good, even some of the teachers in my, who are at the Catholic school or within the church, that uh, the Protestant church that I would go to on Sundays, they were also, you know, they weren't overly encouraging, but they weren't also kind of, you know, worried about my soul, so to speak. They were like, okay, this is interesting. So um, then it's time to go to college, graduated from high school. I, I said, well, what is everyone doing? Everyone's doing pre-med. You know, so I said, oh, I'll just become a medical doctor. Yeah. That seemed the safest bet, even though I was really into art and drama and acting. And I said, well, that seems like a safe bet. But after one year of doing pre-med, okay. I was, I said, no, there's no way. I mean, organic chemistry, I failed. I was just, it was a horrible student. And I spent all of my time in the, the religious studies section of the library. I just found myself drawn there. And instead of studying for my science exams, I was just throwing myself into book after book about Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity. And so then I checked in my university and they had a religious studies major. And I said, oh, okay. My parents again, God bless them, Buddha bless them, whatever. Bless them. <laughs> they were totally cool with it. And so it took off from there. Yeah. So my sophomore year, my second year, I switched to uh, philosophy and religious studies. Okay. Uh-huh. So how was the experience then? Because at, at first you were basically getting the information through books mm-hmm. and then you actually start a degree. How was it like? Did you, was it how you expected Yes, it was even more than I expected. I had such a great advisors, mentors within the philosophy and religious studies departments. They really, um, they were just wonderful. They really, uh, they introduced me to going to conferences, for example. There were conferences on religious studies, you know, in New York City or encouraged me to go to, you know, the Buddhist wing in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, so it was, they just really took me under their wing and introduced me to this whole scholarly world. Yeah. I mean, I was very, also very much in the, the religious pursuit personally. You know, I was also at that time getting into meditation, visiting churches, mosques, Buddhist temples, Hindu temples in New York City to just experience it all. But then I noticed, oh, there's an academic side to it as well, mm-hmm. which I never knew existed. I never asked, oh, I could actually go on to be a professional scholar, yeah. which I didn't even know. So that's what really kind of catapulted me into considering, you know, a professional career in religious studies, yeah. as well as more personal spiritual journey. Yes. Uh-huh. So that, that was basically what you knew. How old would you say you were when you say, all right, this is for me. This is the way I want to go. I would say, nine, yeah, 19. But earlier on, even in high school, when I was like 16 and constantly hanging out in the bookstore, again, no internet <laughs> in the mid-90s. Yeah, wow. So it was just going to the bookstores and just or, or used bookstores or local library. And so I kind of was already kind of I felt like I was being guided in that direction or mm. something or pushed in that direction by some unknown force. I mean, <laughs> as hokey as that sounds. But then it uh, yeah, it, it pretty much, you know, late teens, early 20s. I knew, OK, this is this is something I, sh- I should take seriously. Wow. Mm. And then you finish your degree. Mm hmm. 
and then was there any anything in between degrees? No, I pretty much knew right away I wanted to go to Harvard Divinity School. That's it. Like I knew they had an excellent world religions program. They were just that year that I entered, I knew they were going to start a Buddhist studies component. Oh, wow. They brought in a top Buddhist studies scholar, Donald Swear. And so I knew right away that's and that's the only place I applied. Okay. I just knew I wanted to go there and everyone said, oh boy, Tom. <sighs> and you know, you're throwing all your eggs in one hat. And I said, but I just have a feeling. I just... You know, I just know this is where I belong. And so, yeah, luckily I was accepted and uh, spent, it was a two-year master's, but I was having such a wonderful time that I extended it to three years. Okay, good. <laughs> and oh, from there, it was just, it was magical experience. Three years in the divinity school. It was a mixture of academic study, but also personal religious journeys for everybody. And it was just a great group of people where I was exposed to um, scholars and uh People from all walks of life, yeah. and religious traditions, all mixed up in three years. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because I could imagine that people are coming there from totally different yep. backgrounds. Yep. Like we were talking before, different religious backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder how was it? It's rare that you find that kind of culture where many people with totally different mm -hmm. mind beliefs mm -hmm. that are living together. How was it like to, to be surrounded by people from totally different beliefs systems, I would say, especially from the religious? It, yeah. it seems to me like re religion is the kind of uh, the kind of topic that a lot of people, they just want to yeah. surround themselves with the people that think the same way. Right, right. So how was it like to be exposed in that environment? It was eye-opening. In some respects. So, for example, the Christianity I was brought up with was very, you know, kind of liberal. It was something you did on Sundays. But then, you know, having dorm mates, because we were living in a dorm, of people who, you know, their religious life was, their, their, their church was everything. Yeah. You know, so there was on that end, um, you know, also interacting with very, for example, very conservative Buddhists. You know, again, we can get into that, but, you know, there's the perception that Buddhism is democratic, liberal, open-minded, smiley. Mm. And then I said, wow, these these Buddhists are quite, you know, I, I wouldn't want to hang out with them. You know, they're, mm. you know, anti-gay uh, you know, rights. They're, mm. you know, pro-life. Uh, just they opened my mind in other ways as well like mm. that. But overall, it was very respectful. We It was very interreligious. It yeah. was very, it was a time in the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s when intra and interreligious dialogue was a big thing. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, that was the spirit of the time. So it was, um, we were all thrown together and we just would have interreligious ceremonies or be a Buddhist and Greek Orthodox you know, religious <laughs> ceremony. We made that work. And then there was a wow. Hindu Muslim ceremony we'd be part of. So, um, and then just living in Boston and Cambridge was just a hotbed for. I've been there. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, amazing. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> when I was traveling around America, when I went to Boston, I was like, if I have to choose a city yep. in the States, it'll be Boston. Yep. For some reason, I got drawn into it. Totally, totally. Yeah. And after I graduated, I didn't want to leave, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a PhD. So I stayed another two years and worked um, as a book stacker in the Harvard really? Law Library, just stacking books wow. eight hours a day. <laughs> I just sucking all this all these books. Yeah, and still going to being part of the Boston Cambridge lifestyle. And I was living in a Buddhist monastery at the time to save rent. And okay. yeah, so I was uh living because many of the monks would come from they were missionary monks sent from Myanmar to either missionary monks or they were monks 
installed within a certain area within Boston where there was a large refugee community of Burmese or a migrant community of Burmese that needed a monk or a, a place of worship in their neighborhood. Yeah. And so with my background in Burmese, I was I knew the language. And so I would just kind of be, in exchange for room and board, I would do their chores, I would help pay their bills, I would bring them to their dentist appointments, their doctor's appointment, translate for them. Wow. So you speak their language? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. When, when did you learn? I learned when I was, you know, in, in and out of the country, first of all. Yeah. And then living with the monks, that helped. But also just books and tapes, cassette tapes. Oh, wow. <laughs> cassette tapes <laughs> and workbooks. Wow. Yeah, just drilling myself while I was stacking books, you mm -hmm. know, eight hours a day, you know, or even before that, just uh, on commutes here and there. Because during my time there also it, at Divinity School, I had to learn a lot of Sanskrit and Pali languages as well mm. to study the Buddhist scriptures. So it was a very language heavy program. Mm. And so at that time, just adding one more language, it sounds crazy, but it actually wasn't that difficult. It was like, oh, just add one more. My mind sure. was primed for it at mm. that point. Yeah, yeah. They say uh -huh. that one, first language is the hardest, uh -huh. but then after, especially people that know three, four languages, yeah. adding a fifth one. It seemed like it, exactly. They already, they have the mindset. They have exactly, the exactly. Very nice. Yeah. And was that at that time where you, because at some point you start focusing more in Buddhism mm -hmm. and you start focusing more in Southeast yes. Asia. Uh -huh. um, so at what point did you start to, kind of shifting your, mm. uh, your your career to Buddhism? Great question, actually. That's Yeah, that's really a great question. I, I don't think I've actually ever <laughs> thought about that trajectory until just now. It had to do with um, mostly the, the meditation that I was doing at the time. Okay. It was Vipassana meditation and the, the American uh, meditation centers that I visited around the United States while I was an undergraduate and master's student mm. were very much involved with the, the Burmese meditation traditions okay. that had been you know brought over to the West by lots of famous Vipassana teachers like Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. it just happened that I was doing a lot of you know, Burmese style meditation, mm. mindfulness-based meditation. Yep. I was just happened to be friends with a lot of Burmese in the Boston community, um, living part of my time in a Burmese Buddhist temple yeah, for helps. room and board. Visiting during my summer breaks, I would go to Myanmar to do kind of my own kind of research or meditation. And so it just kind of seemed natural. I couldn't imagine if I wanted to go into a PhD, I couldn't imagine doing Japanese Buddhism or Chinese mm. Buddhism. I was just already ensconced in the Burmese world yeah. that it just it was just it was like a natural transition mm. uh -huh. and then you ended up doing a phd yes in what specifically it was in yeah buddhist studies so i specifically wanted to work with um, a couple of scholars um either charles hallisey who was at wisconsin at the time or ann blackburn who was at cornell mm -hmm. and cornell also had a really strong burmese language program and a really strong uh, program in Southeast Asian studies. Mm. So uh, that was my first choice. And uh, thankfully, Anne Blackburn accepted me as one of her students. And from there, it was just another magical experience of just Buddhist studies, Southeast yeah. Asian studies, Asian studies, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for, I don't know, <laughs> I, did, I think it was eight years my program eight was. years. Wow. And also going back and forth for, as you said, meditation yes. retreats. And yeah. So um, in the summertime, I would get research money to go to Southeast Asia mm -hmm. and do research, do language study. And to help save money, I would 
when I would go to Myanmar, instead of staying in a hotel or a guest house, I would just stay in a Buddhist monastery or a meditation center. Wow. And that would save money. And since I was studying Buddhism and meditation anyway, it was just a natural fit. Yeah. So I just threw myself into it. Wow. Yeah. And then at some point, you decide to become a monk Mm -hmm. in Myanmar. Yes. All right. So I I really want to know (laughs) a lot about that. How did you decide to do that? Like what prompted you to be like, all right, this sounds like a good opportunity to do this. I I had a very, let's put it this way, I had a very romanticized, idealized view of the the monastic life, the celibate life, whether it was the Christian brothers, the, the Catholic priests, um, the Buddhist monks. I, because I had only experienced it through books hmm. and romanticized biographies and autobiographies, I just had this picturesque view of what being a Buddhist monk would be, Mm. sitting under a tree, meditating, you know, gaining enlightenment in a year or something like, I said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. I'll I'll be enlightened. I'll come back, you know? (laughs) And so I just had it in books. But then once I got there and I said, yeah, I want to be a monk. And that's usually the the characteristics of a recent convert or something. They really go all in and they go really hardcore. And I (laughs) I remember showing up even before I became a monk and I had my stack of of Buddhist books, and I had the the Vinaya, which is um, uh, pretty much the monastic code for monks. Okay, so you know all the rules they have to follow, things you can do and can't do, and like I don't know, like a police officer, I was sitting there with my books, being like, "Oh, this monk, he's breaking infraction rule number eighteen. Oh, How really? dare he?" and and they just shook their heads and they're like, oh God, here we go. Another Westerner coming and, you know, trying to teach us what being a good Buddhist is. And so I, I mean, within the first few days mm. of me being there, I realized it was not at all what I expected. Yeah. But I said, okay, no, I came here. I want to become a monk. I'm going to, I mean, luckily I should say in the Theravada tradition, mm. especially in Southeast Asia, becoming a monk is not permanent, unlike in other traditions where it's a lifelong commitment. And once you leave, yeah. you can't go back in again. And there may be some social stigma attached to, to disrobing, as they call it. But in the Southeast Asian tradition, there's it's all sorts of social and cultural reasons for why young men and women or old men and women, middle-aged men and women, enter the monkhood and leave it many times over the course of their lives. There's okay. all sorts of reasons we can talk to if you wish. But uh, so I, I went there knowing that that was an acceptable practice. Mm. So I said, I'll go in and see how long I last. Okay, so you go, went there without knowing whether it will take you a month or six months? Or... Yeah, and again, my parents were totally cool with it. They they kind of had a feeling, they'll, he'll be back. You know, my mom yeah. calls it monk for a month vacation or something. <laughs> she was, and so I got there and within a week I was scratching at the wall. I just wanted out. I mean, I just, really? it was, I mean, it's so boring being a monk. Like, because I, I chose a meditation temple. Okay. So I said, oh, I'm just going to meditate all day long, every day. You know, why not? And then after like the first, you know, couple of days, you're like, this is it. This is my life, you know? <laughs> all right. So it's it's basically meditation 24-7. Yes. So tell me a bit about the, what is it like to be a monk? Once you get there, uh-huh. of course, it must be a shock. Your daily routines, what was that like? The daily routine was very open, actually. We had lots of free time. You may get called upon to do some kind of blessing or officiate at a certain ceremony. So a lot of my time was spent... Not meditating, actually. They, I was because that's not really what monks do. Again, that was an idealized view of what I thought monks would do. But monks are actually very involved in the community 
not doing necessarily socially engaged things that we may think of, you know, like building dams or feeding the poor, things like that, but mm. officiating over very important rituals. Um, so for example, somebody builds a house, they need a, a, a group of monks to come in to say some prayers okay. or some rich, do some rituals to sanctify it or to make sure the ghosts are gone. Mm-hmm. So I was, of course, me being, uh, you know, what I thought of a good Buddha should do, I was very against doing that. But the head monk told me, Tom, you got to memorize this chant. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't memorize it, you have to tape it on the back of a, a fan. So, okay. you know, just like a, a hand fan that you would use to keep yourself cool during the ceremony. And it was a very big fan. So I would just tape it or glue it on the back of the fan and keep my face behind it and <laughs> read the chant. Wow. And and then you'd go home. I would say, yeah, home. You'd go back to the temple and your day was mostly open, but there's a lot of rules you can't you have to follow. So you're not allowed to eat dinner. So you're not allowed to eat any food after 12 noon. So interestingly enough, your entire life begins to revolve around food. Lots of things that you think you might miss, such as your family, friends, sex, other things like that, music, over, you know, over a f- few weeks, that tends to fall away. Mm-hmm. But food, you dream about food. You think about, oh, what are you going to have for breakfast the next day, lunch? And I would often, I was a bad monk. I would, me and some of the younger monks my age, we would sneak out in the middle of the night and, you know, eat ice cream, have, <laughs> find candy. So I was breaking all sorts of rules. But I was like, you know, I said, well, if no one has found the rules, why should I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you were like, ah, these guys are not following these yeah, other exactly. rules. According to my books. Exactly, exactly. All right. So it's the food that was the most getting used to the habit of the eating schedule. Yeah, the, the schedule. Eventually the schedule was okay. But then because it's – you just – you have so much free time. And a lot of the monks still lived close to their families. So a lot of the monks were from the local neighborhood. So – and the, living as a monk doesn't mean that you have to sequester yourself or take any vows of silence. Mm. A lot of the monks were just going back to their – family villages or their house they grew up in watching some world cup football okay at the night you know listen to some music watching some you know james bond movies but i had no family so it was just me by myself so i imagine it would have been different if like i had my mom and dad and sister down the street i could be like oh yeah i'm still a monk but i could go hang out with them or my my childhood friends Mm. so that's when i knew that this was not necessarily what i wanted to do anymore. Mm. And also I was beginning to have visa problems. It was still a time when there weren't that many Westerners there and especially Western monks. You know, the government began poking their their noses into things. I mean, there's yeah. always the, the the thought that this young man might be a CIA agent or something. Yeah. Like why is this random guy a monk in yeah. this, you know, this rogue nation? And so the the head monk of the monastery he had quite a bit of clout, so he was able to squash those conspiracy mm. theories. But it just got too much that I was just like, you know what? It's it's yeah, not it's worth it anymore. Good. I just want to go home. Yeah. Yeah. And it took you how long? Six months? It was six first? months. Uh-huh. I actually don't know. In the process, once you become a monk, do they do some sort of uh, steps? Like, like I could imagine in um, Christianity, mm. um, you have different steps that you go through mm-hmm. until you become a priest, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. How is it in the, in the Buddhism? Or? Yeah, I guess it depends a lot on the, the Buddhist tradition, mm. the Buddhist temple or monastery that you want to join, the teaching. So, for example, in Mahayana Buddhism, which is found in places like China, Japan, and Korea, mm. where Buddhism is becoming a monk or nun is a lifelong vocation, mm-hmm. they want to make sure you're ready. And so they they set up a lot of 
steps to make sure you have to pass. And yes. then when you're ready, you can quote unquote graduate to become a monk or nun. Whereas in the Theravada tradition of Southeast Asia, because it's more of a cultural thing to ordain temporarily, it's much more fluid. People are coming in and out that really you just show up and say, I want to become a monk. And they say, okay, um, tomorrow morning we'll shave your head. Here's some robes. Ceremonies at, you know, 9 a.m. So you were all uh, orange uh, yep. suit, shave head. And it just happens so quick. Did they know? also shave your eyebrows? In That's in Thailand. Okay, so again, Thailand. so there's very cultural specific idiosyncrasies mm. around, you know, becoming, you know, the, the, the monk culture. Uh-huh. So I didn't have to do that, thankfully. Okay. Yeah, I heard it's a, it gets quite annoying just because even when you sweat, they, <laughs> then, the, then the sweat goes into your eyes. I never thought about that. Yeah, apparently, believe it or not, that's a, one of the That's important. really interesting. I just remember the, the robes were made out of like cheap nylon and okay. in, in, in climate with 35 degrees, 95% humidity, it just sticks and clings and to my body. Uh, and it, oh, it's just such an unpleasant experience yeah. <laughs> wearing those robes. And there's so many robes. And it's just hot and humid. But okay, so you're 21, 22 years mm -hmm. old, and you have just gone through a six-month monk experience. Mm -hmm. I could imagine you come with a lot of kind of learnings. And mm -hmm. I mean, you definitely have a totally different approach to a, a guy in the States being 21 years old. Could you share with us like what kind of learnings mm. you got from that time? Hmm. Something that maybe they don't teach us in the more Western uh, society. And when you came out of the whole experience, you were like, you know what? Now I have this with me. Um, mm. Wow, Javier, another excellent question. <laughs> These are really good questions. <laughs> I never thought about this. Um, off the top of my head, there was a couple things. One is I, I was never, growing up, I was never really into alcohol or drugs or anything like that. So mm -hmm. just... Oddly enough, me and a group of my friends, we just were never into drugs or alcohol. And so coming back out of a monastic culture, I realized just how important it was to abstain from drugs and alcohol. Personally, for me, I was able to appreciate even more so just the clarity of mind that one has when not dabbling in those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I was never, I never preached it. I was never somebody that went around preaching against, you know, you know, for abstinence, things like that. But I just came to appreciate, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, that's something I don't need. And still to this day, I don't do any of that. And um, not for moral reasons or anything, but just I, I was able to appreciate the clarity of mind that comes with it, and the clarity of one's direction in life, mm -hmm. able to make better choices. So I had zero religious epiphanies. But it was just very more concrete things like that. Another one was having a different kind of understanding about religion, lived religion. So I'm, I would consider myself a scholar of lived religion, which is studying religion as it's actually practiced as opposed to how it's said it's practiced, like yeah. in the official books. Yeah. And I got to see, wow, these monks are just a bunch of young guys just with a different uniform. You mm -hmm. know, they're still smoking. They're still having sex behind the scenes. They're yeah. they're naughty. You know? being your humans. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. There's nothing special or extra religious about them. And even some of the superstar monks that I visited were just not very nice people. Big egos, power trips, acting like little kings and queens. So that was another thing that really opened my mind to... I wouldn't say it's a, have a lack of respect, but to have a more measured respect for what I, for people around me. It's true. To, yeah. It's true that we, when we think of monk, mm -hmm. we might think of them like maybe very nice, mm -hmm. uh, calm, enlightened people. But at the end of the day, we're all humans, mm -hmm. and we all go through the process. So of yes. course, yes. Once you get into them, especially because you knew the language, yes, then you can tell, you can see how they're 
yeah, it's regular people trying to do their best like everybody exactly, else. Exactly, that's uh, true. That's true. And fitting in with the theme of your podcast here, Unconventionals, I really was hmm. also realized that, oh, it's okay to be unconventional. Hmm. You know, I was like, oh, uh, you know, I could continue on being unconventional. Yeah. And my life will still be okay. Do you ever struggle with that? Because this is something that I've talked about before hmm. with people where they have they might have a calling in whatever way, mm-hmm. but they they can feel the pressure of following the crowd, not being a little bit of an outsider. Yeah. Um, did you ever struggle with that feeling of like you said at the mm-hmm. beginning, you you went to medical school because that's what everybody was mm-hmm. was doing. So mm-hmm. when you knew that you started jumping into all these experiences, did you ever struggle with that or did it flow? It seemed good. Another good question. It it just flowed. It seemed right. And again, thankfully, I had really supportive family. My mom and dad. They were just mm-hmm. like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I, you know. But you seem to be okay. You're happy. You're healthy. You're you're not getting into trouble. Uh, being surrounded with supportive friends, a good network, and I would always. I already kind of had a, a lot of practice being unconventional through mm-hmm. my life. You know. Growing up in a small town, and then I got into skateboarding and punk rock and having to deal with jocks from the football team, like beating us up on a Friday night or (laughs) running away from them or having to deal with the police chasing us and taking our boards, you know, just already being unconventional. I was like, oh, getting into Buddhism is nothing compared to, you know, growing, (laughs) being a teenager in this small town, being unconventional. So it's like, oh, this is it's no big deal. But it's interesting you say now that I'm older, being unconventional is even more difficult. So I seem to be living an unconventional life being a professor of Buddhist studies in Hong Kong, hmm. but it's become very conventional. You yeah. know, it's become solidified. It's the new norm. The norm, exactly. Yeah. So now I'm thinking it could be just a midlife crisis I'm going through, but I keep thinking, <laughs> what? how could I be unconventional now? Like what? what's, go back, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like quit my job and just do something completely unconventional. <laughs> so that's something I've been thinking about coming, getting ready to, to come here this morning. Uh, I was thinking- Wow, my life has become quite conventional, ironically. I don't think it is, for sure. (laughs) But I could imagine, for sure. I will talk a bit also about that. I'm actually Mm -hmm. quite curious to see what could be next for you. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, But then, yeah, so how was it like to be back? So now you've spent (laughs) six months there. So you go back into real life, I guess. Yes, again, I'm laughing because I was in in the basement of my parents' house. I had we just gotten our first computer, just got dial-up internet. Okay, and I'm down there thinking, what am I going to do with my life now? You know, like looking for any dial-up internet, looking for Buddhist communities in the area. Mm. Um, And you know, thankfully, I stumbled across the program at Harvard Divinity School, and so it was there that I just down in the basement of my parents. My parents were like, yeah, this is cool, you know, but eventually like a lot of my other friends who were living in the part of their parents' basements or houses after graduation, they were like, you got to get out. You got to find something. We'll give you like a six month grace period. And my parents <laughs> were like, they weren't, they knew I would find my way that I'd find my footing. But um, yeah, so downstairs filling out the applications for Harvard Divinity School, it just seemed like the next logical step. And it seemed right. It just, again, like as you said, it just flowed. Just flew. So um, yeah, just six months with my parents, um, uh, kind of mentally unpacking what just happened uh, in the previous six months. Yeah. And then moving on to my master's program. Yes. Uh, theological studies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I'm actually quite curious to know from your point of view, religions, mm-hmm. 
Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about it since you mm-hmm. you study quite a bit. It, it is quite hard to to compare religions mm. across the board, mm-hmm. especially like we mentioned before. They seem to be very is- isolated, mm-hmm. and it's uh, you don't find many p- cases where they're kind of like interrelating. Of mm-hmm. course, we're actually quite lucky that to live in Hong Kong, where you actually see uh, Buddhism, Muslims, even Christians. Mm-hmm kind of a living together, but the core values of each religion, would you say that they, the religions are very different to each other or they are actually more common than mm. they think it, they are? Very interesting. I just started teaching a course on comparative religion this semester for the first time okay. in many years because, again, in, our, in my field of religious studies, academically doing comparative work is kind of frowned upon because they see it's superficial in a way. They think, you know, if you can't go Deep. You, if you want to be a good comparativist, you have to go deep into every religion and really take into account all the different idiosyncrasies and mm. not overgeneralize. Yeah. Um, so um, I've been very much more interested in comparative studies over the past couple of years. And But to answer your question, I would say at the core, they're all similar in the sense that they're all coming from similar desires – fears, emotions about life. Not, and I don't mean that I'm trying to psychologize away religions. I'm saying that as we see the developments of religion over time, so historians of religions, anthropologists of religions, as they study it in the past, as it's, de- as it's developed and as it is today, the religions, yes, they are functionally useful in people's lives, hmm. but there's something about them that unites humans. Hmm. So culturally, again, myself having been exposed and living all over the world, and there's definitely some major cultural differences amongst people. Hmm. Um, and that seeps into the way the religions are portrayed. And as you said, the way that they've kind of been uh, packaged and presented. Exactly. But when you really start to peel away the layers, you begin to see that there's certain common themes that keep popping up again and again and again that really get at the heart of what it is to be a human. Hmm. So I really do think that because we're all humans, religions have all come from whether or not there's some divine or God. Religions are the the responses to how humans interact with the world and this supposed divine. And each culture has a different way of doing it, but at the core, it's all coming from the same place. Exactly. Like you said, too, a couple of moments ago about the monks, they're all just trying to be good people. They're mm. just trying to make it in the world. And Yeah, yeah. you have a peace of mind, yep. try to do good, go to heaven. Exactly. Or hell. Yeah. Or hell. Yep. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. All right. So now we're at the time where you have went back and then you, you were able to join Harbor, mm-hmm. study there. But I know that that wasn't the last experience living as a monk. Yes. You had a second one. Correct. So when did that happen? The second one was in Boston, of all places. Okay. I forgot to mention this when we were talking earlier. Um, so again, I was part of the Burmese refugee diaspora community. And again, part of becoming a monk is very cultural specific in the sense that Burmese see it as a rite of passage for young men or old men. It's a way for people to, you know, kind of check out of society for a little while if they're unemployed or it's a place to get uh, food and health care. Mm. Um, so there's all education. There's all sorts of reasons. But another reason is for men and women in the community, especially women, to gain some kind of social prestige by sponsoring okay. a man or a, or a woman, but usually mostly a man, to the, the monastic order. Mm. So there was this older woman who, um, you know, in her 70s, and she had no children of her own, but she really wanted, before she died, she really wanted to have this experience. She wanted to donate a son. So I was very close to her. So I was like okay. an adopted son or nephew to her. 
And so I would, she, she asked if I would do that for her. Hmm. And I said, oh, after my first experience, I, I don't think I want to become a monk again, especially not in a working, it was Malden, Massachusetts, a very working class neighborhood in Boston. And outside of Boston, I said, I just don't, you know, I'm a student. I, you know, I have you know, a girlfriend at the time. I just, and she said, yeah. you know, it'd, it'd mean a lot to me. And you, you just do it for, you know, a few days to a month. I said, okay, you know, so I had vacation and so I did it and they, the community went all out. They really did a Burmese style ceremony. Oh, wow. uh, they brought in uh, uh, a pony for me to, I mean, I won't get into the whole, you could go, YouTube look for, you know. A pony. <laughs> oh, wow. You could look, go on YouTube if you or your listeners are interested to look for, um, you know, Burmese ordination ceremony okay. and you'll see why there's a pony. But anyway, there was a pony, a horse that they brought in from a farm. I rode it up and down the street a couple of times because it's all part of the ceremony, this ritual, which is reenacting the life of the Buddha hmm. as he's leaving his home to become a monk. The police show up. They're saying, what is going on? Do you have a permit for this pony, for this parade? Oh, and wow. they're, like, they're like, no, it's not a parade. It's a religious ceremony. And they're like, no, you're blocking traffic. <laughs> what is going on? Who's this white guy with his bald head riding around on a pony? Oh, wow. And again, the, the the police officers were so great. They said, oh, we're, we're Catholic. We understand. Oh, okay. So they stopped traffic for us. Wow. One one uh, police officer went back to his locker at the <laughs> station, brought back a rosary, because Buddhist monks also use rosary beads. Okay. And this police officer broke back a, ro- a rosary that he got um, on a pilgrimage somewhere, and he really wanted me to have it. And so it really – and then all the neighbors came out. There, again, they were like – they weren't sure what they thought of this new community coming into their neighborhood, but they all came out, and it was a great That's experience. Great. And um, my aunt was very happy that I went through it. And yeah, so that was, and then I lived as a monk for almost a monk in Boston, you know, Mm. just wandering around the Boston streets with monks. That And that, I have to say, was actually a better experience. Being a monk in my own town, my own culture, my own city, my own country, Mm. uh, it was, it was actually much more pleasant. I get a lot of stares and, but people were generally interested. Like, what are you? Who are you? And so what would you have to do differently now in that month in Hong in sorry in Boston? Do you have to do it any different? Uh, so we were talking before about your daily routines yeah. and, and the fact that some of the people there mm-hmm. could go back home and watch mm-hmm. TV at the end of the day. So now you are in, yep. in the States. How was it like? I mean, for example, one thing, monks monks are not allowed to drive cars, but they kind of they look the other way when you're in another country where you need a car to drive places. So I just, you know, I had the monk's car and I was just driving around, visiting friends. Um, you know, the monks would say, oh, we need to do this this ceremony in downtown Boston. And after it's a Burmese Chinese family, then they're going to take us out for yum cha, you know, dim sum. And so and then they want to take you to the movies. Um, so it's kind of like and you know, the the days would be often the because the Buddhists, they get merit by mm-hmm. helping a monk do something. Okay. So by picking you up in the day and taking you out on an all day excursion, they're getting merit for doing that, for driving you around, for feeding you McDonald's. Um, So for them, it's like, oh, we get, you know, rent a monk for the day. And (laughs) I just went along with it. I loved it. And wandering around Boston streets as a monk, people coming up to me asking me if I was a Shaolin Kung Fu master and all this stuff. And But uh, no, it was just a really great experience. Mm. And like you said, I was able to, you know, I had family and friends nearby. So, you know, I'd visit them. So actually, I didn't want to disrobe at the end of that. I said, I could continue on this yeah. could be something i could do for another few weeks or months but um i had to get back to school and i guess i could have um continued on being a monk at, at harvard with my classes nobody would have thought anything differently but yeah. it was just another layer of 
stuff I would have to mm. keep in mind, yeah. you know, so. I'm actually, in Buddhism, do they try, like many other cultures, to get people into Buddhism? No, it's not a very evangelical tradition. There are certain evangelical subsects within different Buddhist schools, but for the most part, it's uh, very hands-off. Yeah. Um, but in so- there were many people that I was almost like a unofficial missionary in the sense that so many people were interested that they wanted. So we actually had a big influx of people mm. coming to the local temple because they had met me on the streets, mm. you know, at a bookshop, um, at a McDonald's or somewhere in Boston or Cambridge. So for that month, we actually had a lot of people coming in. And because of the monks didn't speak English that well, they were unable to really kind of communicate with the local Americans there. And so I was able to fulfill that role, mm-hmm. like teaching meditation through the monks okay. the monk, and, tran- and doing translating for sermons. Uh, so yeah, so that was a great experience being a okay. monk in America. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. And then eventually you, and I don't know if I'm missing something mm-hmm. along the way, but you become a professor. Yeah. <laughs> And you moved to Hong Kong. Was that your first experience as a professor? Yes. Yeah. So after um, I did my PhD program, which was eight or nine years, very long in North wow. America, uh, for other various reasons, I, I also stretched it out because the job market was bad. I got some grants and scholarships that allowed me to live in Asia for two years. Um, I had, you know, I got married, had two kids. Oh, wow. uh, so there was really no rush. You know, being a PhD student in North America is extremely stressful. But it, it offers a nice safe zone. It's mm. like a nice place. You get a stipend, mm. which you can live off. My wife is also a PhD student doing history at Cornell, where we both met and were. So, you know, we both, being part of the, the academic community, it was, it was a very nice experience and having mm. two young children, um, or one children and another child and one on the way. But you, you definitely had quite a lot of experience in Asia. You mm-hmm. went to Myanmar and you said you lived in India as well. Yes. So then moving to Hong Kong, was it different to the other more South, Southeast mm. Asian countries uh, to settle in a city like this? Sure. I, I'll say it hasn't always been easy. Um, I, it could be due to the the urban lifestyle, you know, going to cities anywhere in the world. It's just it's a colder environment. Uh, people aren't as friendly, but culturally it is very different from, uh, I would say, North America and Southeast Asia in terms of interpersonal communications. So, it's yeah, I mean, again, cultural differences and how they manifest outwardly amongst people's behavior is very different mm. uh, here in North America, India, Southeast Asia, For sure. East, other parts of East Asia, Japan, Korea, where I've been. So being in Hong Kong as, a, as an expat family has been wonderful, you know, with mm. two children, exposing them to, you know, weekends here and there. I mean, it sounds very privileged, which it is, but our job necessitates us to travel to these places to do research, whether in a library, archives, or uh, doing more ethnographic research mm. on the ground. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it's 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 been quite quite a seven years, for, sure. for good or for bad. <laughs> for sure. A lot of research you did, and that actually took you to publish a book? Yes. When was this? Um, this was 2018. 2000, okay. Yeah, 2018, 2019. Yes, it was based on my my dissertation, which I finished in 2014. So the book's called? Uh, the Buddha's Wizards. Power, healing, and magic power and healing in yes. Burmese Buddhism. <laughs> Even I've forgotten the subtitle. <laughs> All right. But if you Google it, uh, the Buddhist uh, wizard, yes. it should pop up. Yes. I looked it up and it popped up. Yeah, so. there's not too many Buddhist wizards. All yeah. Right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit curious about it. What's the, what's the figure of this wizard yeah. in the Buddhist? Do we have that in other cultures or is that a specific thing? Very, very interesting question. So, again, being brought up partly Roman Catholic, I was exposed to all of these saints 
So when I had a sore throat, the the monk or priest would, you know, bless my throat. I didn't know what was going on. Or if there was the the patron saint of car crashes or there was all these saints that I grew up around. They weren't a major part of my life, but peripherally. Mm. So I wanted to do my original research doing something on meditation or Buddhist nuns. But the more time I spent in Myanmar, I started to come into contact with different types of Buddhist cults and schools and subsects within this Theravada. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were centered around these Buddhist saints. And not just ordinary saints, but there were saints that they dabbled in magic. And so that totally overturned and complicated my view of Buddhism. Yeah. You know, that's not something you normally think of. At least yeah. I didn't at the time. And I said, what? They don't have that in the books. Right. That's not in the books. There's this Buddhist monk who's meditating and then going out and saying all these magical chants and prayers and healing people. And another monk or nun was being possessed by a spirit. So there was this whole world that opened up to me. And as I learned the language and started reading books and uh, began interviewing people, this whole new world opened up to me. And then for there, I said, oh, this is something I want to follow, follow up on. You know, that sounds so cool. Buddhist wizards, magicians, uh, sorcerers. Yeah. I mean, it was a perfect topic. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Were they open to, you know, give you information and knowledge about that? Because I could imagine you're mm -hmm. there, so you might be asking questions mm -hmm. and were they okay with the fact that it's kind of like a figure that it's a little bit strange, I would say? Exactly. I mean, a lot of people were – partly it was easy because I had such a long history there already in the country. So I already had my networks of trust built. Mm. Um, they knew I was serious. Uh, they knew I wasn't just something popping in, asking a few questions, and then leaving the country. Uh, so I already – even before doing the research on the topic, I was already peripherally interested in the world of wizards. I was already kind of – trying to myself learn these spells. I was interested in actually learning how to actually, you know, be a magician. Not that I thought I was going to be a sorcerer or a wizard in myself, but I said, <sighs> wow, there's this guy I know down the street from this monastery that I could apprentice myself to on the weekends mm -hmm. and just hang out with him, you know? So it was just, he was a friend of mine. He was a so-called wizard. I never see him do anything magical, mm -hmm. uh, but he taught me or I learned while just hanging out, drinking tea with him, learning languages. Also, you know, he had a computer that I needed to, he had an email <laughs> accounts, so I needed to send emails to my family on the weekends. And so I already had my networks. And, but like you said, also, there's a lot of people who they would roll their eyes or be like, no, no, that, that's not really part of our religion, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, so just stay away from that. Why would you want to study yeah. that? Why don't you want to study the more pristine or pure aspects of our religion? Mm. So uh, it would be like somebody doing uh, a study on some dangerous, violent Christian cult, for example. Somebody would be like, oh, come on. Why don't you just come to our church and, and learn about, you know, you know, real, quote unquote, real Christianity. Yeah. When in actuality, that is deplorable as that sounds, a violent Christian cult, that is Christianity. So, so a lot of my... People, the interlocutors I, I spoke with that were not in agreement with me studying these wizards often took that stance. They said, oh, they're violent, they're manipulative, they'll brainwash you, be careful. Mm -hmm. um, that's not Buddhism. Mm -hmm. You know, it still is Buddhism. They consider themselves Buddhists. Mm -hmm. You know, why don't I throw myself into it and really try to understand them? But you never saw them doing any magic trick. No, a lot of it is, I hate to say it, but just magic tricks, sleight of hand. If I get a plug for another friend of mine, his book, Guillaume Rosenberg, called mm -hmm. The Immortals. He actually lived with, his research was living with these so-called magic monks. And it's all one big act. Like the people who are there know that it's quote unquote not real magic, that mm -hmm. it's all sleight of hand. Mm -hmm. But yet for them, it's still real. 
So it's really interesting. He does a really great analysis bridging the two worlds. Mm. So my research wasn't so much on whether or not was it real. And it wasn't even so much at looking at the lives of the wizards. I was really interested uh, in the people who believed in these wizards. Yeah. You know, the the men and women and children who had dreams of these men or women, these wizards, um, who felt that these wizards had come to them in their time of need, who had healed them of all sorts of diseases. So I, I really devoted my attention to the people. Mm. Despite the fact that they might know there's no real magic, they still choose to believe. Yes, yes. And I think that can be extrapolated to many other uh, cultures. Exactly, exactly. So if you have to summarize it in a one or two findings mm-hmm. about why people choose to believe, mm. um, what what was your take out from that? Basically, they, to their core, they believe they had some kind of experience, mm. one that they couldn't shake. And what I go into the book as well is that they were already culturally primed for this experience. So what I mean by that is by virtue of previous stories about these wizards interacting in people's lives. There's a lot of uh, websites and magazines and books devoted to talking about the wizard experience. Mm. People, when they have an experience of the wizard, of course, they're going to have that experience. So, I mean, they're not going to have an experience on their deathbed of Jesus, for example. Mm. Their culture and their popular media have already primed them to have an experience of this Buddhist wizard visiting them at night and healing them of their whatever disease they have. Mm. And then they miraculously wake up the next day the doctor says, you're healed. Oh, my gosh. The person says, it's the wizard. Yeah. Thank Buddha. <laughs> and then they go on to tell their story, of course. which gets more followers. Mm. And the, it just goes on and on like that. Well, from here, we encourage everybody to, to who's interested in religious studies mm. or Southeast Asia to read the book. Thank you. Where, where can people find it? If they just Google um, it. Columbia University Press is selling it. Uh, Amazon. It's also ebook, and it's also you can get it. I'm sure on some pirated sites for free. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure no, my no. publisher won't like to hear that, but no, no, no. it's an expensive. Come book. on, guys. So there's don't worry. I don't get any royalties or very little. So if you can find it for free, you can find it okay. on the website on some websites, some pirated websites. Some you'll be able to find it. All right, <laughs> in PDF copy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's um, nice. I think I'm going to ask you a couple more questions sure. before we Yeah, sure. I'm totally up. fine. This is a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a great interviewer, Oh, by the way. Know. Yeah, it's great. So, okay. So we've talked a little bit about religion well, quite a bit. I, I hope you don't mind me asking, do you believe in God? Mm, that is an excellent question. My daughter's asked me that this morning, actually. Okay. Um, this is, Daddy, are we Buddhist? Are we Christian? <laughs> and my students always ask me this. Hmm. But for this, I would say... I want to believe in God. You know, Mm. I really hope that there's something on a cellular level or I feel on an emotional affective level, I feel like there's something more. There's something out there. And, you know, really when things are going really poorly in my life, especially that's when that feeling really comes to the Mm. front. Again, we can psychologize that. We can explain it away through all sorts of secular uh, ways. But I, I want to believe, I want to feel. And it's interesting raising daughter or children, when I have my own children, they're asking all sorts of questions about heaven and hell and the afterlife and angels. And if they're super angels, you know, do angels die? And why do Buddhists have a different afterlife than Christians or Jews or Muslims? So it's all these other things that I've never thought about before, which now, as I grow as a person, I notice that my views of my personal religious life are also growing, changing, and evolving. As we get older, our views, our personal views of religions change. And that has been 
inspiring to me. I said, oh, it's it can change as my life changes. Maybe let's say if I die soon, how do I want to be buried? Do I want to be buried? Do I want to be cremated? Uh, yes. According to what religion tradition am I going to be buried or interred? Or am I, you know, these are kinds of things I'm popping up yeah. these days. And I do teach my children that, yes, there could be very much something else out there mm-hmm. that you should try to be in tune with and to be open to because it also makes life so much more exciting. Yeah. The possibilities of the unknown, whatever those unknown may be, and if they exist, or if maybe they're just mm. part of our own mental creations, it's still fun. It adds yeah. this extra layer. Yeah, like a deeper like, meaning to it. Yeah, yeah. It's just exciting to live with that extra meaning. It's funny how children can often ask the most difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then uh, I think I'm going to wrap it up with another uh-huh. rather deep question. Mm-hmm, we sure. were just mentioning a meaning and I was wondering whether you think the quote-unquote meaning of life mm. changes across religions. Mm. Um, do you think there are big differences between what Buddhism might consider the meaning of life to be and maybe Christianity, just to give more, maybe those two examples? Mm. And maybe you can even give me your own. I, I can give you the a couple answers. One, the academic answer, and one... Mm-hmm. What I've, through my research, which is somewhat in, uh, academic, but also what I've experienced in my life and with interacting hmm. with people from different religions. So academically, yes, there's very much a different goal. To Buddhists have a very different goal than Hindus versus Christians versus Jews versus Muslims. Buddhists, for example, life is suffering, but there's a way out. You know, you just got to find that exit strategy. You got to get out somehow through meditation, through becoming a monk or a nun, eventually not even doing good works, you know, getting merit or things like that. That's important. That's, you know, that's okay. But that will eventually keep you in this wheel of samsara, as they say, rebirth, which is just lifetime after lifetime of unending Mm. suffering and annoyance and stress. So Mm. you want to get it out. Christians, Jews, Muslims, for example, they say, no, this is just this one life. We're here for some reason. God's infinite wisdom put us here for some reason. And after this, we go to heaven or hell, hopefully heaven if we do a lot of good things. Those two kind of the Abrahamic religions versus, let's say, Buddhism. So academically, there's a different goal in mind. And that may, one could imagine, that does trickle down and in influence how people live their lives if that is what's on their on their radars mm. or that's that's what they're looking at they're they're looking out into the distant you know the distant future of themselves whether on this earth or in an afterlife mm. but personally and in my interactions with people from all religions of the world because I'm constantly engrossed in religions whether it's an academic perspective or just people who are religious around me it really i th- i think it does come down to just being good but still with a view of the afterlife so mm-hmm. even buddhists they know academically or philosophically that that's happens what i just spoke about a few moments ago yeah. but they still want to do good work so that they can go to at least a heaven in their afterlife You know, so still Buddhists, Hindus, they know that in their religious worldview, it's a cycle with an eventual exit. They still want to do good works in this life and be a good person so that they can go to heaven in their next life. Hmm. Whereas same thing with Christians and Jews and Muslims, for example, they want to do something good in this life so that they'll go to their their next life will be in a good place. So, yeah, so that's the difference. Academically, yes, we can say that, but on a more affective, personal level – just being just being good ultimately trying to outweigh at the end of the day when when the scales are are weighed the the good outweighs the bad mm, that's that's sure. what i think 
Well, I think we're going to finish with that beautiful quote. And <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's a good way to end it up. Great. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. I think it's been learned a lot. Yeah, this is okay. excellent, Javier. Thanks so much. This has been a really great experience. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, wish you all the best and have a good one. Man. Yeah, you too, Javier. Thanks so much. All right. Bye, guys. That was great. You're really good at this. Oh, thanks, man.